I'm ready. Look, this is not the episode that we wanted to record this week, but it's the one that I think we really needed to record this week. And you might be like, why? And I think the answer is because just as we're venturing down the rabbit hole of topics over the next few months, that is civic engagement and making a difference now leading into 2024, we had a really latent and scary and fearful number of reminders this weekend about why we all want you to know and do more differently. And that's because at the end of the day, people's lives are at stake. Right. So if you want to know how we feel about the latest mass shootings, because I guess we're up to, as the date of recording, 40, right, in the U.S. as of January 24th, which is... 24 days. Let's point that out. Right. So we have more shootings than days, to be clear, right? So if you want to hear, you know, about how we feel sort of the last 48 hours, right, of mass shootings targeting Asian communities and Black communities and why we largely don't give a shit that it was an Asian shooter, except in supporting the Asian community in processing their grief and pain and our grief and pain, how to think about hate crimes and what the larger issues are and what things are that we can each actually do. This is something you're going to want to listen to. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, where we normalize and model conversations about race and racism so we can help white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. We're here with you on this journey, and we're your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and Misasha. So you, Misasha, first of all, happy belated birthday. If you didn't know that, you weren't following us on social media. So get on over there and follow us, But Love you. Thank you. How are you doing? birthday aside. Birthday part was lovely. Yeah. I mean, as you know, in our offline conversations, Sarah, all three of the shootings that are listed in the title of this episode are ones that are close to me personally. And that was really hard, I think, for me. Like, I'm still processing, you know, and I'll probably be processing as we are discussing. You know, Monterey Park is a community that I spent a lot of time in growing up. Half Moon Bay is obviously very close to where I currently live and is a big enough part of our lives that, you know, I have kids who play soccer tournaments out there, right? It is very, very close. And Baton Rouge is close to my extended family. So yeah, like part of me feels numb and then I feel terrible for feeling numb because I shouldn't feel numb. I should feel all the things. And I feel so angry that this is how we mark the start of Lunar New Year. And then I also feel so angry that... This is now so commonplace that we can have, you know, these news headlines and people and it's just like we're just going to live our lives through another mass shooting. So I'm not sure if that answers your question, but I'm sort of feeling all the things right. Mm -hmm. Anyway, how are you? Hmm. Yeah, I think even without having the extremely personal connections like you were just sharing to each of these locations, I was really sort of energetically really down. It reminded me about how afraid I am for my mom. She lives in New York, the other popular place for Asian Americans to live or Asians of, you know, Americans of Asian descent. But I was like, oh, thank goodness my mom's in Japan. They don't usually have these sorts of things there. Like she's there for the next few months. And so it was that reminder that there's a fear for the parent. But I think the other thing that I haven't really spoken about here, but I know you and I have spoken offline about it, is that I've had this fear both since the pandemic and with a lot of the anti-Asian hate coming to the forefront fear about going out to sort of public gatherings or celebrations. Like I've always, you know, when we did the Denver Women's March, we were invited to be right at the front of the march. Like I've always not liked 
big group things, but now even more so because I'm just afraid. These things happen with zero predictability. And I just don't think it's worth it, but I miss getting together and celebrating Japanese traditions. I miss the bon odori. I miss the like the things that I get to do to celebrate our culture, you know, not just Asian culture, but like it's uncomfortable. And it felt like a reminder of that yet again. And I sort of had waves of feeling nauseous, sort of nauseated and sort of like un not okay. But then amazingly, I was also really pleased to see how many of my white friends actually checked in this time. Like I really appreciated everybody who saw that I, that we might be impacted by this personally. So I felt like there's progress there compared to years ago, which made me a little bit more relieved. And then I really felt like, you know, in the show, we've talked a lot about drop into your body. Like a lot of this work is real. It's not just this cerebral thing and learning a lot about the vagus nerve and these parasympathetic nervous system and like these tools for actually calming down and recentering before diving into work when you're feeling uncomfortable and off was really, really helpful. Those things really came to the forefront after this weekend. So thanks. I appreciate you asking. Yeah, I love that we're able to hold space for each other and hopefully for our larger communities as well, right? Through this episode and what we're doing, you know, outside of us recording podcast episodes. But I think you touched on some things that we want to talk about. We want to talk about all the things, right? And so you know, I love that you were talking about how white friends checked in with you, right? And I think that this is such an important thing because communities are hurting, right? And those are the people that we need to be centering in times like this, right? So I think it is about empathy and seeing ourselves in the other person, right? And in this instance, friends of Asian, Black friends, Asian descent, Black friends, you know, with these specific shootings. But I mean, obviously, this isn't the start. This won't be the end. So center those groups in your response. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, and I'd love to talk, going back to being cerebral for just a second, but about what works and doesn't work when you're checking in with friends. Because I know that we spoke with Kate Schatz about this on an episode earlier this month. But For me, when those friends were checking in, they were really simple texts just saying like, how are you doing in the face of the shootings? And I appreciated that they thought to check in. But what other suggestions do we have for folks who are going to be checking in? Yeah, I think it really depends on your relationship, right, with the person. I think that we've talked about on this podcast, right, about how after the murder of George Floyd, suddenly, and I was just talking in a group about this recently, how several Black people in the you know, aftermath of George Floyd's murder, suddenly all the texts were coming from people that they didn't have sort of a personal relationship with. And I think everyone responds differently, right? For me, I can tell when people are being authentic. And I think we all kind of get that gut feeling, right, about who's authentically reaching out and who's reaching out when there's, you know, a tragedy, right? And I love that Kate's talking about, are you you reaching out to them, you know, on like a Wednesday, right? On your average, if that's your relationship, then absolutely send that text, right? Make that phone call, send the email. But also the individual that you're reaching out to is not the representative of that entire race or group or whatever category. And I don't think you need, you're not entitled at that point to an explanation of why this happened or, you know, what this community addressing at that point. I think you just want to show support say you're there. How are you doing? Right. Such a simple question, but I think it conveys a lot more than that. That's awesome. Thank you. I mean, I think the second bucket of things, so we talked about how do you reach out to your friends? I think the second bucket I really wanted us to talk about is actually about this experience of being biracial. 
especially for the two shootings, right? Like in California, we're heavily centered around the Asian community. And one thing I want to share is that when one person of Asian descent, I saw these conversations and said basically that they really appreciate this opportunity to heal in community after awful things like that. My instant reaction was twofold. One was like, I'm so happy and grateful that this Asian person has a place they can go to, to help facilitate healing because these events suck. And then at the same time, I felt this gut punch because I don't feel like I have that community. You know, I do have my group of whatever we want to call ourselves, eclectic Asians, friends from high school who were like a combination of Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Japanese national, Japanese, like very diverse group of Asian folks who, you know, multiple decades later can still be with each other across the internet. I mean, we live across the world right now, so we can connect online, but that's about it. Aside from that, I've really felt repeatedly unwelcome in Asian spaces being biracial. So how has that shifted for you over time or has that shifted for you over time? It has. I mean, I think when I was a kid, it happened all the time. I'm curious if it happened to you too. Nowadays, I think it's somewhat shifted, right? I felt super welcome at a Japanese American Citizens League event I was part of in Denver. And I've met a great activist of Asian descent in Denver over happy hour. And they explicitly stated that they were creating spaces that welcome folks, no matter how Asian they were, right? Like by blood. And that made me feel incredibly seen and safe. But I think it's also unpredictable because there's also been other groups that I don't feel welcome in. And so it's almost like it's not worth it for me to try because I don't know if this group is going to be welcoming or not. And then I'd rather just maybe speak to you or, you know, speak to my old school friends. And I don't have that community. I felt like I missed out. But so what is that like for you? You know, I think we had similar experiences growing up. I feel like I talk about a lot when there is, you know, trying to navigate your way when you're constantly being told you're not enough of whatever, right? And being told a lot in Asian spaces, right? Like, not necessarily with words, but with actions or gestures or how people include you or don't. That vibe, it's the knowing vibe. Yes, like you're not Asian enough, right? And so it's interesting that, you know, we're talking about this right now, because right before we're recording this, I had seen on social media, this sort of space for holding space for grief, and trauma and sort of community, right, for Asians. And it was very specific that it's Asians only, no allies, you know, welcome in this space. And then there's this asterisk that says, like, people of mixed race, mixed Asian race, welcome too. And like, I appreciate that, I guess. But the fact that you have to asterisk that and say people of mixed Asian race are welcome too, it highlights the fact that I think being biracial or being multiracial, often you're left out of these conversations. So how do you grieve, right? How do you grieve in community? How do you hold that community space? Like, I think about it for your kids and my kids, right? Who are like, and I'm heavily air quoting this, less Asian, right? If you're going to do all the fractional math here than we are what is their pain going to be seen as, right? Like, how do they have community? How will they have community? I hope that as, you know, we continue to recognize that all of us are tied together, like I make this big gesture, right? All of our liberation is tied together. That includes biracial, multiracial people, because, you know, I think we've talked about, we are those cultural bridges, right? It doesn't make me any less Japanese, in a lot of ways. And so like you, I I think I felt the most welcome in Japanese spaces, to be perfectly honest. And I'm talking about Japanese spaces in the US. I'm not 
that Japan, Japanese space in Japan. It's a whole other conversation. Yes. <laughs> completely different. But I think when I get into larger, like Asian, you know, umbrella Asian spaces, that's where I start to really be questioned. And, you know, and so I honestly think about, is this space going to be more or less traumatic for me to go in to try and address my own trauma, which is kind of a ridiculous consideration, but it's something I think about every time. Mm -hmm. It's a lot to have to layer, I think. Well, now that we were just talking about things that are slightly annoying, let's talk about stuff that was even more grating, right? Because I think the third bucket of things I really want us to all think about is that there was a lot, it wasn't just, there was just a lot of layers to unpack. So what graded on you about the Monterey Park incident, aside from the fact that it's just awful? Yeah, I think I want to talk about this later because mass shootings, right, are a systemic problem that we have in our country, right? I do not think we can look at that in any other way. Yet, when we have a mass shooting, the responses to mass shootings are if a mass shooting disproportionately affects one race or one community, it's really only talked about by that community. And I'm not saying that this is everyone and all people, right? But I think vastly, right? That is the way it is. And so we continue to individualize our pain and our hurt and how we are impacted when this should be a systemic discussion, right? And I think with Monterey Park, like what has been difficult for me as someone who is Asian is that we as a community, when we recognize that it wasn't a hate crime and it was really community violence, we need to focus our narrative on larger issues, right? Again, going back to stuff like gun control, because also I know our community can be silent when it comes to hate crimes against other global majority groups, right? Especially black and brown folks. And we can't do that. We cannot be divided in pain and suffering. It just doesn't work. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing that for sure. Well, and it's interesting you said that it because it comes this community issue, because one of the things that got to me was that so many white folks first reactions were literally it's like, oh, well, at least it was an Asian shooter. So it wasn't really a hate crime was kind of like the thinking, right? Yes, seriously, because I've literally never heard white people say, well, fortunately, it was a white shooter that killed a whole bunch of white kids, you know, for example, because that's never going to happen. And I think we need to think about why that's the case and why there's never been a thought about it being a racially motivated hate crime in that situation or how, you know, and Sarah, you talk about this a lot, how we're not making all white people out to be bad because of the actions of that one white shooter when that definitely goes the opposite way when it's a non-white shooter. Ooh, I love how fiery you just got. Your pace and tone were just like, rah. So fiery. <laughs> so fiery. That really, oh, that's like, you talked about what graded, that graded. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think my thinking is that going back to what I said before about that fear, I feel about going out to these public celebrations, group events or whatever, like no matter who did the shootings, the impact or even why the impact of it is very clear to me. And that is that it makes me afraid. And I think for the folks of Asian descent who continue to be targeted by hate, you know, which more often than not is just not covered by the media so that people don't actually know that it's still happening. I think that undercurrent of fear is still here and people just go, oh, I didn't know. I didn't think so. But that's the impact. The impact of this, no matter what happened, was it a lot of people were killed this weekend. Yeah. And it really, it impacted a whole community, right? Regardless of race of shooter 
or victims in this moment. And, you know, I think we've sort of used the word hate crime because that was the original question around Monterey Park. And we got some questions around what makes something a hate crime, right? So by law, hate, the word hate isn't about rage or anger or general dislike in this context, right? But instead, it means biased against people or groups with specific characteristics that are defined by the law. So at a federal level, because there's federal level and then there's state designations as well, you know, hate crime laws include crimes which are often a violent crime, such as assault or murder or arson or vandalism or threats to commit such crimes that are committed on the basis of the victim's perceived or actual race, color, religion, national origin, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity or disability. And for what it's worth, there are also bias or hate incidents, which are acts of prejudice that are not crimes and do not involve violence, threats or property damage. And I kind of think of it as felony and misdemeanor right levels. And those in particular are something that really gets underreported in particular in the AAPI community. And that doesn't get covered, like Sarah, like you were saying, by the media nearly as often. And is that death by a thousand paper cuts, you know, that people talk about when they talk about microaggressions, right? This is separate yet similar in its impact that so many historically marginalized folks have been experiencing. And so, yeah, someone could absolutely commit a hate crime against someone in their same marginalized group if they're motivated by their race, though, to be clear, based on what we've heard, that does not look like what happened in the Monterey Park case. Yeah. All right. Thank you for that, because I did want to clear that up. I think this last bucket really is something we want everyone to lean into, and it's the action part, right? Like, what can we do? Because this bigger narrative, you were talking about that before me, Sasha, it's not just about a community. There's really big dynamics at play here. And that bigger narrative is the one where, just in line with our theme of civic engagement and civics 101, these are the things that we can do to make a difference. So let's dive into that. Yeah. And I love that we're talking about this. So let's start with big picture, right? And we saw some great tips from Lily Jung, who's a DEI consultant and is an amazing, she has a book and she writes some amazing stuff, especially on LinkedIn. So definitely give her a follow. But what she said was really important in this instance. And so she listed a couple of things to really think about. One is invest in local community organizations and civic infrastructure, which is exactly what you were just talking about, Sarah, because violence isn't just an individual issue. It's a systemic one. And when folks feel connected and like they matter, violence goes down. Right. So vote for, organize and support those organizations however you can, because guaranteed they're in your community. You need to find them and help them. All right. Second, don't believe, and I know this is a tricky one because I saw this even in my next door feed about Half Moon Bay, right? Do not believe that the answer is more surveillance, more punishment, more incarceration, and more policing. First of all, the evidence shows that this doesn't mitigate violent crime. And second, it ends up continuing to disproportionately affect the Black, Brown, Indigenous, Latinx, and Southeast Asian communities. So what should you do? Go back to point number one, support community-led initiatives instead. All right. And third, and I think all of these are important, but this is a really, really important one. If you're listening to this and you're also like, oh, I don't know, these things happen, you know, or you saw the headline, you know, and you were like, oh, that's terrible and moved on. Stop distancing yourself from these issues. This isn't something that you can shake your head at and say, wow, sorry that this problem happens to heavy air quotes, those people. This happens to all of us, to our people. 
It's not and it cannot be an us versus them issue. So stop putting racial layers on it to further distance yourself and build connections instead. I love all of that. Yes. And yes, thank you for that perspective. And I love the framework of just making sure we think about that in specific issues, because I want to talk about these. There's, I think, a few buckets of bigger issues that we can engage with, the bigger narratives that we're talking about. And I think it's guns, then I think it's hate crimes, and then domestic violence. So on gun control, I mean, duh, this is a huge issue in the US. You know this because you have not been living under a rock. And I think we will dive into it in a whole separate episode in more detail. But the bottom line is, I was actually telling my husband that if I thought that the worst guns people had in this country were handguns, right? Not capable of slaughtering tens of people in moments. I probably would go out to Lunar New Year celebrations, to the Cherry Blossom Festivals, to all the things. But this massive number of killings due to guns in like moments, that is a core problem in this country. And we are among the worst in the world in the United States. Let's be clear, right? So I think there are things we can all engage with Going back to that idea of little like organizations, not little, but like local grassroots organizations on gun control, I think you could sign the Sandy Hook Promise. You could make sure you're involved with Moms Demand Action, which is a bipartisan group. Every town, which they're all connected, they do research, they, you know, campaign for the government, like they do real things there. The other thing to engage with on a, you know, a representative level, I think you can actually reach out to your representatives and tell them, look, I've had enough. End gun violence in 2023. You know, they can focus on so many things. Background checks, responsible gun storage, disarming domestic abusers and supporting red flag laws, outlawing those large capacity guns that I was just talking about. I mean, there's so much that can be done. And I think on top of this, going back to the importance of community and building conversations, We have to talk about it. We have to talk about it at our kitchen table, at our book clubs. Like we have to talk about it because even if you think it's inappropriate at schools, this is affecting all of our kids at their schools too. Ask them about the lockdown drills that scare the crap out of them. My kids hate it. So we have to talk about it and we have to speak up and we can engage in this topic and gun control. Yes. And I want to add two things to what you just said. First of all, if you listen to our Civics 101 episode last week, you know how to contact your representative and you know that your representative can listen to you and take your ideas and make them into a bill. So this should be on everyone's high priority list to be talking to your representatives about because two of these mass shootings that we're talking about are in California with very strict gun laws and we are still dealing with this issue. So it's not enough. Okay. Second, I think that a lot of the discussion that I've seen today in the news and social media has been around mental health issues as well. And I want to emphasize this. If we had better gun control laws in this country, we wouldn't have guns like you were saying, Sarah, especially like semi-automatic rifles and assault weapons, right? Be the last resort. It wouldn't be have to be this combo discussion about mental health plus guns. It would be mental health treatment, period. And that's what we should be focusing on. So we need to remove the barriers to having this really important conversation. And those barriers are assault rifles, right? And the fact that we still, 10 years after Sandy Hook, right, still have not done anything. And that is terrifying. Okay, so switching gears from gun control to hate crimes, right? Because both, excuse me, the Southern Poverty SPCL and the Justice Department both have great resources for this. So please go to their websites, right? We are huge supporters of both. And let's just go through a couple of steps, right, related to hate crimes. 
Of course, if you witness a hate crime, and remember what we talked about war hate crimes just, you know, five minutes prior, report it to the local police immediately and follow up with a call to the FBI, either online or at your local office. You don't want to wait. You want to do this immediately. And take seriously the smallest signs of hate, right? Starting with small slurs in your immediate circles. Speak up and interrupt because it's that interrupt, right? That will change behavior, hopefully, right? Teach acceptance young. Make sure your children and the young people in your lives are exposed to and understand that they are just one of 8 billion people on this planet and that we are all human and that we are more similar than we are not alike. All right. Next, develop partnerships with those in power, right? Speak to the press, write to newspapers, and hold them accountable to their reporting and encourage leaders to name the problem and speak up against it and make sure you understand how your local law enforcement interacts with the community and focus on solutions for how this relationship can be leveraged. I don't know about you, but in these last 48 hours, I have gotten a ton of emails from various organizations talking about gun control, signing petitions, ways in which you can get involved. Do not delete those. Read them. Pick one. Take some action. Okay, let's start there. And, you know, this dovetails right into doing things yourselves, right? Sign those petitions. Lend your skills to vigils and rallies. Roll up your sleeves and get involved with your community members and repair hate-fueled vandalism because it happens in all communities. It happens in ours, in the Bay Area. I know, the home of the liberal progressive. It still happens, right? Call on and be part of groups that are likely to respond to a hate event, whether that's a faith alliance, a youth or teacher or education groups or members of targeted groups. Awesome. Thank you for all that. This last part, the bucket, domestic violence, right? First of all, if you're in a situation, know that you are not alone. You have help. Call the National Domestic Violence Hotline, 1-800-799-SAFE, S-A-F-E, right? You can text the hotline. You can learn more from their easy-to-exit website, too. It's at thehotline.org. So I think it's important for you to know that there are resources out there because more than one-third of women, listen to that, and one in 12 men have experienced intimate partner violence in their lifetime. So don't ignore it if you think you're seeing something. Be available to help. Be ready to listen and believe the person along with having the number for your local shelter in your phone, right? Like be that person who can support somebody else. I think also along with that is getting the word out that domestic violence is a real problem. You can talk about it at the workplace, in fairs and faith groups, wherever, at local organizations. I also think this next one we talk about so much, use your power as a consumer. You have wallet power. Don't support the media that are glamorizing violence, especially against women. And I think going back to your point before me, Sasha, too, support politicians who explicitly talk about it, who work on gender violence, who fund violence prevention programs, who are supporting money for housing assistance, you know, who reduce dating abuse for young folk, who create safety nets for people who often are getting isolated from their families and loved ones and cannot get out safely. I really think that cannot be understated. We have to talk about it and we have to be putting money towards it. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing. And finally, I think this will surprise zero people who listen to this podcast on the regular, but we want to leave you with this. This is the moment, if there was no other moment, right? This is it, where we all need to bond together to fight white supremacy instead of our traditional inclination to divide and point fingers at who did what to whom. We need to support policies, and we just listed a whole bunch of policies that will do this, but that help all of us. And we also need to continue question and interrupting narratives that pit one minoritized population against another. 
not just at the voting booths, right? Or not just when some tragedy happens, but every single day, because fundamentally we all need to feel safe as humans in order to thrive. Let's work together to ensure that those most vulnerable are safe because without that, nobody else will truly be safe. You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to DearWhiteWomen.com to get on the list. <laughs>